Well, this evening, as we begin our worship, I invite you to stand, and let's read together Psalm 99, verse 5. Here we go. Exalt the Lord our God, and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. The word exalt in this verse means to lift up. And so tonight, we're going to lift up the name of God and the Lord, our God and Jesus. The, the Hebrew word for worship in this verse means to bow down low. And obviously, bow down low in his presence at his footstool. And then the word holy is that means the, that God is unique. He is holy other. He is the only one like him. And so that is the God that we're worshiping tonight. That's the God we're here to worship. So invite you to worship with your whole heart this evening. Let our praise be your welcome. Let our songs be a sign. We are here for you. We are here for you. Let your breath come from heaven. Fill our hearts with your life. We are here for you. We are here for you. To you our hearts are open.
stand here and sit here in your presence at your footstool we are declaring who you are what you've done for us and we are so glad that you are our God and we worship you and bow before you and give you all the glory and honor that you deserve this evening well, this evening we're in chapter 14 of John and we're going to be looking at where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. And so he's here with us this evening, but let's uh, thank him for being here in our presence this evening. Become more aware of your 
If you would open up your Bibles to John chapter 14 as we continue our journey through the Bible. We'll be finishing John here, oh, probably about a month or so. And then after that, then we'll be moving on into um, the pastoral epistles. If you're watching online, we want to encourage you to go ahead and, and maybe sometime before now in the end of the study. Before now in the end of the study, um, if you could grab... Uh, some bread and something uh, to drink for when we do communion here at the end of this day. Tonight we're going to be taking a look at John 14, and it's something that, that it's a set of scriptures that you're going to be really familiar with. Uh, we, we often spend time in John 14, and he really is addressing, Jesus is addressing his disciples. And there is a condition of Fear and discouragement that Satan can use to rob you of your joy. Have you ever been, like, afraid? Discouraged? If you think about the word discouragement, it literally means discourage, means to take courage away from. And what was going on is, is they were becoming discouraged. They were becoming overwhelmed. And we become overwhelmed very easily at times by situations and circumstances, but we can also become overwhelmed and discouraged by not knowing the future. Sudden change, a crisis, a death, or anything that can come in that can alter our future and not knowing what that future is going to be can, can often be very overwhelming. Retirement can be overwhelming for some. I don't know how it could be, but not knowing what the future is going to be, medical conditions, all of that can be uncertain. And you, you come to a place where you really have to stop and pause and take control of your emotions and stand on the truth of God and not allow emotions to run you. And Jesus here at the, at the time of this Last Supper, which is where he's at, he's in the upper room and the, this... This is the farewell discourse, the, 
the washing of the feet has taken place and, and all the things have happened. Judas is gone and they're getting ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the disciples are, are significantly troubled because Jesus is saying to them, I am leaving you. They're like, we don't like that. I'm going away and you can't come follow me. What do you mean? I don't like that. <clears throat> We've been with you for three years. And they were deeply troubled. And they were now starting to get it. And so Jesus wanted to calm their hearts full of anxiety. Their anxious hearts. To explain to them the reason why he has to go. The whole reason behind leaving. And to give to them some hope. So I guess maybe as we walk through this, a question that you might think about and, and, and look for the answer is this. Where do you go, what do you do when your heart is troubled? When anxiety is driving you, where do you go when you are in your darkest hour? When you don't know that future? Jesus gives us a really good model of how to find calm and peace within this. And so we're going to journey through chapter 14. We're going to go rather quickly. There's, we could spend weeks just on this passage. We are going to move through it because the, the key is really the presence of the Holy Spirit and the purpose of what Jesus is doing and why he has to leave. So we start out in verse 1 of chapter 14 and he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way where I'm going. Well, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, what? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now we know verse 6 very well, but we often miss the context. What's the context? The disciples were freaking out. They were losing their marbles. Because all of this, I mean, imagine Jesus has, has, has washed their feet the Last Supper. And he talks about the bread and the cup and all these things. And he's going away and they're like, uh, you'll get there. Don't worry about it. And I'm going and there's a purpose behind it. And in verse 1 he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. This is a strong prohibitive statement. It's do not stop letting... No more. Stop it. Have you ever had somebody that's been so full of anxiety you want to grab their ears? Stop it! That's, that's kind of the force behind this. And what's interesting about this is, is what's implied. He says, do not let your heart be troubled, which implies you have control over your heart. You have control over your heart. We say, well, I don't have control. Yes, you do. Stop it. Do not let your heart be. The whole idea is, how do I stop being full of anxiety? I trust in God by faith. Your emotions will corrupt your faith, but faith will stabilize your life. If you allow your emotions to drive you, you will be like a sea tossed back and forth. But faith is the anchor, and it's not faith in faith. 
It's not faith in religion. The only faith that will stabilize you, that will anchor you, is your faith in Jesus. Your faith in God. That's the stabilizing force within that. The word trouble there is terasetheo. And it literally means to be stirred up or agitated. Kind of like being in a washing machine. You know, I used to surf an, an awful lot when I was younger. And there was a, a, a set of places that I would go, but Huntington Cliffs was the worst. Because Huntington Cliffs had three breaks. If you're, if you're from Southern California, you know what Huntington Cliffs is like. There's three breaks, and you have to find the channel to get out to the furthest break. And if you don't make it out past break one and break two, you're in the soup. You're in the washing machine. And when they break, you get turned over, and you get turned over, and you get turned over. And you better be able to hold your breath for a long time. And then you end up on the beach, and then like a young knucklehead, you get on the board and you go back out again. That's what this word means. It means to be turned over and tossed back and forth in turmoil. And when we think about it, he says, don't let your heart. Why your heart? Because the heart is the epicenter of the being. Everything resides into the emotions and the heart, but he implies, he says, you can take hold of it. And he knew that the disciples were disturbed. They were disturbed by his, his, his talk of leaving them. They were disturbed at his talk of death. Now, when you know somebody and they come to that threshold of death, when they're going to pass from this life and into heaven, that's disturbing. Why? Because the reality is they're going someplace and you're not going to see them for a long time. The unbeliever says, I won't see you ever again. That's disturbing. And what ends up happening is these emotions well up. And if you don't have faith in God and faith in Jesus... Your heart is going to continue to be trouble. So how do we control our heart? We set that anchor in the truth of God's Word and the promises of God's Word. We set that anchor in what Jesus has said. And not just what He said, but He has the power to fulfill it. And we can hang on to that. By actively controlling your emotions and trusting in God. And, and how do we do that? Well, it's interesting what Jesus says. If you catch it, look at it, because I read it slowly. He said, if you trust in God, trust in me. And what's he saying? Well, a lot of people will say, I trust in God. Why? Because God is this ethereal being that's out there, and we put our faith in God or a God. And he says, look, at, with the, you say you trust in God, who you can't see, Trust in me whom you can. I'm right here. Why did Jesus come in the flesh? So that we could see God. So we could see Him. The disciples could see Him. He could touch Him. You say you trust in God. Trust in me. Why? Because I am God. It, they're one and the same. And so within this... What he was calling them to do was to give solidity to what they say is their creed. Now keep in mind, the disciples were Jews, and they would go to the temple, and they would trust in Yahweh, and they would believe in the, the whole Jewish system and the religion. And Jesus says, you trust in that. Trust in me. To be able to do this. And, and 
again, it's a very strong language. It's, a, it's an imperative. It says, you need to do this now. It's a kind of a faith. And, and, and the interesting thing that he's teaching here is this. Faith is not an emotion. Faith is a decision. Just like love is not an emotion. Love is a decision. You make the decision to love. You make the decision to believe. It's not an emotion. And so one of the things that we can do to not be troubled is to stop allowing our emotions to run us and make the decision to have faith in God. Why? Well, in verses 2 through 4, he says this. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and if it wasn't so, I would have told you, and I'd go to prepare a place for you. Okay? What does that mean? Well, the idea is this. Jesus says, in my Father's house, in my Father's dwelling place, in His house, are many, as I said a couple weeks ago, apartments. You're not going to get a big mansion. It's a, you're you're going to get a place to live. But in my Father's house is a place for you. And if there is a place for you, I will come and get you and bring you to me. What is the implied truth? The implied truth that earth is temporal, heaven is eternal. The implied truth is, I'm not leaving you here or abandoning you. I'm going, and I, when I go, I am coming back to get you, to bring you to me. So many times, we want our loved ones, or wherever we lost, we want them to come back to us. I can tell you this, every believer that is sitting at the throne room of God would tell you, I'm not coming back. <laughs> I like it here. You want me to come back to that hellhole where you're at? No way. I like it here. You come to me. I'm not coming to you. And so we look at this, and this is the truth that Jesus says. This is why you can stop your heart from being full of anxiety. Because they were worried about him leaving. He says, no, I'm, gonna, I'm going to prepare a way to prepare a way for you to get to your final destination. The picture that he's painting is this. Israel, as they would travel out of Egypt and into Canaan land, they went through the wilderness. Now, the tabernacle was the tent of meeting that would be set in the middle of the wilderness. Israel would camp on all four sides by tribes facing the tabernacle. The dwelling place of God was here, and then all the other places that the other people, the tents, the temporary dwellings was always in, going to be in the presence of the tabernacle where God dwelled, facing that. It was a picture. What's the picture? The picture is the home of God, the residence of God in heaven. And you will leave this temporary tent, as we studied today in men's study this morning, and you get your new house, permanent dwelling place in heaven, in the presence of God, where, that, where you're going to be there, in that presence. What is, he, what is he saying? Don't worry. Your future is secure. Don't worry. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm not going to leave you without. I am going, and I will come back, and I will get you. And you can be certain that he's going to come back. How can we be certain? Well, it's interesting because in verse 3 he says, If I go and prepare a place for you, and I am. That's the first uh, condition. 
I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you will be. In other words, I, I will come again and will receive you in the future. What does Jesus mean by his coming? Well, there's a couple of, of different things that we can imply in here. First, Jesus will return with purpose. One of the things that, that we have to struggle with, is, though, is the leaving. Jesus' path to leave was going to be through the cross, through the grave, through the resurrection, and through the ascension. All part and parcel. But they were only focused on the death piece. They had no construct or concept of the resurrection itself. And they absolutely had no concept of the ascension. But I go to prepare a place for you. Peter would say, in, in, or Jesus would say to Peter, Peter says, I want to go with you. He says this, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, answered, where I go, you can't follow me now. Why? Jesus is going to the cross. But you will follow me later. What does that mean? You're going to die. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life. And we know that he didn't do that. But what was Jesus saying? You can't follow me to the cross because the cross was the means by which Jesus would provide the way to get to heaven. But Jesus said to Peter, you will follow me later. Why? Because you're going to die just like I died, and you're going to be with me. Death is a doorway into the presence of God. It's a path. But Jesus walked that path first to provide the resurrection. Do you follow? That's why he provides the way. He broke trail in order to allow us to follow him for now through death. But at some point, there's going to be the second when he will come again, and that's in the rapture of the church. You can mark it down or follow along in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the, the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, died in Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, that's us, and remain until the coming of the Lord for the rapture, will not precede those who have died, fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, that's the glorified body, and then we who are alive will remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What does that mean? Well, I can tell you on a cloudy day, if you hear a loud, loud horn, check the railroad track and then look up. It may be Jesus. You going to have time to think about it? No. Nope. Corinthians tells us it's twinkling of an eye. So fast, you're not going to know it. It's like I'm here one minute, gone the next. Nothing's left but a pile of clothes. We'll be looking at that and we'll be thinking about that. He's coming to again. When is he coming? Soon, I hope. Today would be a good day. Now, when we look at this, there is another promise, though, and that's the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
there is Jesus is leaving, but he's going to send a comforter. In fact, in verse 23, we'll cover it in a bit, but he says this of, of John 14. Jesus answered and said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. Who's the we? The triune God is inseparable. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is indivisible. Yet the person of the Holy Spirit will take up residence within the believer. And on the day of Pentecost, God, via the Holy Spirit, will indwell the believers and bring comfort and help guide us in the way that we should go to be able to walk along that way. So what is Jesus saying? Don't freak out. We're not going to be separated forever, but things are going to change. We're, it's not going to stay the same. And often change creates anxiety. But if God is in charge of the change, can we rest? Absolutely we can. Absolutely. And Jesus says in verse 4, you already know the way. Well, Thomas, he's like, well, what are you talking about? Well, the word, the way, ended up being the name of Christianity in the early church. And in Acts 9-2, it says this, and they asked for letters in the synagogue at Damascus. This is Paul asking for letters to go persecute the Christians. And he says, so if he found any belonging to note the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So the way was the name of Christianity in this first century. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And so they were following that way that was in there. And Jesus says, you know the way. What do you mean we know the way? What are they thinking? They're thinking road, right? It's not a road. It's Jesus. Have you ever heard the saying, all roads lead to heaven? This, this kind of universalism concept doesn't matter what you believe as long as you sincerely believe it. Is that a truth or a lie? Lie. We know the way. It's not a path. It's not a set of rules or regulations. It's Jesus Himself. It's Jesus Himself that provides that way. The way that Jesus is, is He is the sacrifice. He is the mediator that provides access to the Father. And He is the only one that has seen the Father that knows how to bring us to the Father. That's why He's the way. Now, if you look at any other faith system, they can't say that. That's why He's the only way. The only way. Well, like I said, Thomas, he was kind of freaked out. He, and, he, and old Thomas, he, he doubts a lot. And so Thomas questions, he says, where are you going? We don't know the way. And he, Jesus says, yeah, you do. You think about the journey of Abraham. Acts, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house, note, to the land which I will show you. And you think about that spiritually. What was he ta telling Abraham? Leave the Ur of the Chaldees. And I want you to start walking and leave everything behind. Where am I going? You're going. I don't know the way. I will show you the way. Leave everything behind to the land that I will show you. Why? Because the land is a promise. 
Well, isn't that what God tells us to do? Leave everything behind. And to move forward. Because Jesus is the way. The Jewish thought of the way to get to heaven was what? You all know it. The law. If I abide by the law, that is my way into heaven. Does that work? Does anybody keep the law perfectly? No. So obviously it's not the way. It, 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 it will not get you there. Because we can't follow the law perfectly. So Jesus assures him that he is the only way. And he uses the name of God. This is the sixth time in John's account where Jesus uses the name of God. Ego ami. I am. The same name that God used with Moses in the burning bush. Tell him, I am. Ego ami. I am sent you. I am. I am whatever you need within this. I am the truth. And John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory as the only begotten of the Father. Note, full of grace and what? Truth. We know He's the life. In John 1.4 it says this, And in Him was life, and the life was the light of all men. And we know that Jesus later in talking with Mary at the death of Lazarus would bring these two concepts together. In John 11.25 He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Why? Because he is the only way. So I don't need to worry about what's going on around me. And I don't even need to worry about what's going on to me. Why? Because Jesus promises never to leave me nor forsake me. He promises not to abandon me. And he promises to take me home. I'm good. Now, the road may be a little bumpy on the way getting there. As this tent in this body is being shed behind. But the trade-up and the trade-in is much better. When Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth. There, there, he is the only way. And He is the only truth. The danger of John's day is this. Syncretism. You know what syncretism is? When you bring multiple faith systems and you try to synchronize that faith system that is in there and it ends up corrupting the truth. The only way, the only way, is to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins. Receive that gift of forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit will take up residence in you and guide you in the way unto heaven. That is your trust. Salvation doesn't come through the law, through sacrifice, or through religion. The only way is to know Jesus. The next section that, that John gives us continues this conversation, verses 7 to 14, says, where Jesus says to Thomas, If you had known me, you would have known my Father. Also from now on, you, you know him. And we've seen him. So they're having this conversation. We know the way. Well, if you've seen me, this is the way. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am, ego me, in the Father, and the Father is in me? And the words I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative, 
but for the Father abiding in me and, and his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Now, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he'll do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. And so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do. So now we have this discussion about knowing the Father. And a lot of people really don't know God because they don't know Jesus. In fact, I can say this. You can't know God unless you know Jesus. They're indivisible within that. D.A. Carson says this. To know God is to be transformed and thus to be introduced to a life that could not otherwise be experienced. You cannot know God unless you know Jesus. At least the true God. You can know idols, you can know a manufactured God, one made with hands. The word know is used 141 times in John's Gospels and his letters. Why? Because there was a group of people that were teaching false knowledge within this. And there's a lot of people that would know God as a simple fact. They'll attest to it. We call them theists, right? They just acknowledge that there is a God. But you can't understand truth apart from God. You can know about God from proximity. In other words, hanging around church. You can know about God. But you can't know God apart from Jesus. And the only way to know God is through the intimate personal knowledge that is afforded to you via the Holy Spirit. He unlocks that for you. To be able to see Him. And so, if you know Jesus, then you know God. They're inseparable within this. If you don't know Jesus, then you don't know God. And again, it's this backdrop against the statement of verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Because why? Jesus and the Father are one God. Inseparable. Within this. Hebrews 1.3 says this. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification, says He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thomas, when Jesus was resurrected, said, My Lord, my God. Now you're going, Carrie, I don't get it. And I can be honest with you and say, neither do I. I understand Jesus. I understand the Father. I understand the Holy Spirit. I understand the concept of three persons being one. But how do they all come together indivisible? Don't get it. All I can say is it's above my pay grade. I just believe it by faith. Why? Because Jesus said it is that way. And so we accept that. And so within this, we understand that Jesus is the representation of the Father so that we can know the Father. And so that real faith in Jesus is really the same as believing in the Father. Believing in God. The Old, Con- Old Testament concept was called a theophany. When God would appear... A theophany is this appearance of God. And so what Philip says is this. Philip says Jesus 
give to us a theophany of the Father, like they used to do in the Old Testament. Well, in the Incarnation, Jesus is the theophany. Permanent. He, he, he is the representation of the Father. The Old Testament, they, couldn't, they didn't believe they could see God. They come from the concept, I can't see God. If I see God, I'm going to melt. Exodus 33.20 says this. But he said, you cannot see my face. No man can see me and live. And so you've got to understand these Jews are coming from the construct of, I can't see God because if I see God, I'm going to melt. So I have to see a theophany. Show me a theophany. And Jesus says, I am the theophany. I've shown you everything that you need to know about God within this. So I look at that and I consider, and even in verse 9, and, and what Jesus was saying, where he says, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me? What is Jesus saying? He's saying this. Guys, what is it going to take for you to believe? Have you ever met somebody like that? You've laid out the truth. You've given them everything for them to believe. And they're like, I just don't get it. What is it going to take? Well, we know the resurrection. It would take the resurrection. But even if Jesus would rise from the dead, and he did, were there still unbelievers? Absolutely. Even if a man should rise from the dead, he would say, there will still be people that won't believe within that and won't believe in God. The problem is people are slow to believe. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-3, through 3, John would write, same author in his general epistle later, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have looked and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, and the life was manifest, we have seen, testify, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifest to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus. John finally gets it, where he writes in his letter, and he says, we've seen Him, we've touched Him, we've been with Him. We are eyewitnesses. Trust our testimony. Can a Christian say that today? Sure, via the Holy Spirit. I've seen the power of Christ. I've been touched by His resurrection power. I've been transformed by His Spirit. I can attest that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord. Without a doubt. And He is the only way to see God. Jesus explains that everything He says and does comes from the Father, verses 10 and 11. You want to see the Father? The Father's given. I am the representation of the Father. Believe me. Now we come to this, this idea here of this greater works within this. He says in verse 12, truly, truly, whenever he says truly, truly, what do you got to do? Pay attention. I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also in greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Note, is Jesus still explaining the purpose why he has to leave? Yes. Now, many people have taken this passage and they've misinterpreted it. And they say, well, you know, as a Christian, I'm going to do greater works than Jesus. Okay. Go raise somebody from the dead. 
How about you die and raise yourself from the dead? Is that what it means? No. It's greater, not in quality, but it's greater in quantity. Why does he say that? When Jesus was serving and doing ministry for three years on earth, how many places was he at at one time? One. And he had 11 guys that were kind of doing an okay job. But he had to go to be with the Father and he would send the Holy Spirit who would empower who? All the believers to do what? To do the greater works. And through the process of multiplication of discipleships, go unto all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teach them. What is he doing? Greater in quantity. Not quality, quantity. Does that mean I can pray for somebody and watch them be healed? Yeah. Can I pray for somebody and... and, and Introduce them to salvation? Yeah. The prayer of faith does a lot. Of, but you've got to pray in the name of Jesus, which means you pray according to His will, just like Jesus did the works according to His Father's will. It doesn't guarantee that every sick person you pray for is going to be healed, or every dead person you pray for is going to rise from the dead. But what it does mean, according to the Father's will, and so instead of one, Jesus, doing the Father's will and, and miracles and, and great works being done to authenticate the message, hundreds and thousands of people will be doing the exact same thing all at once to authenticate the, mess, the gospel message that is there. It is, not about, it is not about some ministry that you're going to get rich by by doing all this. It's a simple faith. And it starts with works that brings glory to the Father. That, that does what He asks you to do. In Mark chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, when you were talking about the, the Father, and, and it's hard because the disciples came off the Mount of Transfiguration. They come down with Jesus, and there's other disciples there, and they're trying to cast a demon out of this boy. And the Father says, hey, look it, I brought my son to your disciples, and they can't do it. And He says, oh, you little faith. And he casts a demon out, but he says this to the father beforehand. And he says, do you believe? And the father says, yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. What helped his unbelief? And he was transparent. I'm struggling in my faith. And Jesus took what little faith he had and set the son free. Do we have great faith? If you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to a mountain, be removed, be cast in the sea. And it will happen according to the will of the Father. And so within this, we see that those who believe will experience the greater works. In quantity, the multiplication, the church becomes global. Now, again, verse 13 is another one of those verses that a lot of people have misinterpreted says this, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. Okay, Jesus, that means that there's a contract now. So we end every prayer in Jesus' name. Therefore, Jesus must perform what we ask him to do. Is that, is that what he's saying? No, absolutely not. 
The name of Jesus is not a mystical incarnation or magic spell by which you add to your prayers in order to make things happen. God, I want a 22-foot fishing boat. In Jesus' name. God says, not according to my will, you're not getting it. I'm not giving you an idol. No. So He doesn't do it. The name of Jesus represents the whole revelation, the whole work, and the whole authority. Augustine once said this, effective prayer must be consistent with the person, the work, and the character of Jesus. Effective prayer must be consistent with the person, the work, and the character of Jesus. In other words, when Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will, but your will be done, what was he doing? He was praying according to the person and the character and the plan of his Father. He says, I don't want to do this, but not my will, but your will be done. And he went through and followed the path to the cross. And so oftentimes those unanswered prayers are because they're inconsistent with the will or the plan of God or inconsistent with His person and His character within that. How do I know the difference? You won't. You won't. But you do need to check your prayer and say, am I praying according to the character, the person, and the work of God? That's a good place to start. And then accept the sovereignty of God in the end. Because... You, you are submitting under the, the hand of God. And we think about the whole purpose of Jesus' ministry on earth was to do what? Glorify the Father that is in heaven. So what does that mean? So when I pray in Jesus' name, am I praying that whatever is happening is going to bring glory to God in heaven? Ultimately, that is the core of the prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9 through 10, it says, Pray then this way, Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, note, your what? Will be done, how? On earth, as it already exists in heaven. You see the connection? Whatever the Father's will, it's already set. But when I'm praying, I'm not praying according to my will. I'm praying according to the Father's will. Why? So that when God acts, He gets all the glory. And so the disciples learned this prayer, and they learned to prayer from Jesus. In John 16, 26 to 27, Jesus, in, again, teaching in prayer, He says, In that day you will ask my name, and I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you, and because you have loved me and believed that I came forth from the Father. So within this, we've got to pray vertically in alignment with what Jesus tells us to do. Does that mean we shouldn't pray? No, you should. That's why he says in verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. In my name. Consistent with my character, my person, and the will. And the plan. And so we pray that way according to his will. This last section here is the connection, the connection, the Holy Spirit. I go, don't freak out, it's okay. I'm going and, and I'm going to come again, but I'm not going to leave you alone. The Holy Spirit is going to come. 
And so Jesus affirms them and tries to calm them down by teaching them about the Comforter. In verses 15 to 31, as he goes on, he says, If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Notice that. We're going to come back to that. Another helper. What does he mean, another helper? What does that imply? That he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth. Oh, he answers himself. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. He abides with you. That means the Holy Spirit is present right there in the indivisible Godhead, Jesus. And after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live you will live also. And in that day you will know that I am the Father, and you will know me, and I in you. It will all come together. And he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Now Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Hmm. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we, plural, will come to him and make our abode with him. And he who does not love me doesn't keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. There's that word again. Nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said it to you. I go away and I will come to you. And if you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I've told you before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commands me. Get up, let's go from here. So what is, how does Jesus end this? Well, if you notice, he created what, was called, what we call an inclusio, brackets. And I've talked about inclusio. There's a beginning statement and an ending statement. And it's a brackets, the teaching that is within this. He uses the word troubled again. And he says, don't be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. And I will come again to you. But what does he say in the middle? Well, what's the keeping force that's going to keep us from being troubled? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, that is there. He's preparing to leave, and he's sending back the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is much more than a, a warm, fuzzy, snuggle buddy. Holy Spirit is God. And, and so when we think of Comforter, we're, we're like, okay, you know, I'm looking for that warm, fuzzy. No, there's more to it than that. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. 
The Holy Spirit brings people to Christ. The Holy Spirit baptizes people into the body of Christ, and He instructs people in the ways that they should go. How do I know? Well, here's one of the ways that Jesus says. You'll know that you love Him if you obey His commands. Why? Because you're in relationship with Him. You're in a relation. If you love me, third class, you'll keep my commands. That's a potential. And here's how you'll know. I'll ask the Father and he'll send. Note another. Within that, we see this, this another that is there. And he promises this another that is there. It's another of the same kind. It's not another of a different kind. It's another of the same kind. So God the Father will receive God the Son and send God the Holy Spirit to be with you. You follow? Another of the same kind. Indivisible. Now, the problem is the world cannot receive this. Why? Because the world doesn't accept Jesus. In John 15, 19, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, and I chose you, note, out of the world, because the world hates you. And so within this, we've got to understand that there is a strong evidence of conversion. How do I know I'm saved? In 1 John 5, 2-3, it says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. How do I know I'm saved? Because I love obeying God. I have this love relationship with God. And love is a emotion, decision. It's a decision. If you decide to love me and keep my commands, it gives evidence. What is the commands? To love one another and to love God. You mean there's only two? Yep. Can you do two? Love God and love others? Can you do it? Because everything branches off of that. And Jesus says, then the Holy Spirit will come to you. Islam reads into this passage something that's heretical. Islam says this, and they take the same passage another paraclete, and they say the other helper is Muhammad, which is a whole deviation of the truth, the spiritual messenger of Allah. I can tell you this, Jesus is not Muhammad. He is the Son of God. This, this counselor that comes alongside, the third person in the Godhead that comes and guides you. I don't know how to get there. Stop trusting in yourself and trust in the Holy Spirit. I don't know what to do. Let the Holy Spirit grab you by your ears and yell at you, stop it. And listen. What do I need to do? Love God. Love others. And make the decision to do what He asks you to do. But I'm losing my mind. Stop it. Love God. Love others. It's pretty simple. As the Spirit of truth will echo the words of God into your heart. But the world cannot receive that truth. Why? Because they've rejected Jesus. 
And if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting everything about God, including the Holy Spirit. And the presence of the Holy Spirit. But notice how Jesus says He's the Spirit of truth, verse 17, who comes into the world. Back to my statement earlier. What's going to guide you? Emotion or truth? Truth should always govern emotion. So Jesus promised, I'm not going to abandon you in 18 to 24. I'm not going to leave you helpless and hopeless. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How? In the person of the Holy Spirit. The I. The plural. We. Our. Together. How? Well, they would be alone for a short period of time until Pentecost. Could you stay home alone for 40 days? Then the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And the Holy Spirit has not departed mankind since. Until the church is taken home and the Holy Spirit goes with them. And then, well, all hell breaks loose. Will they see Jesus after He dies? Yes, at the resurrection for a short time. But they've got to understand that Jesus has to go to heaven in order for the Holy Spirit to come back. And He goes to heaven as the mediator between God and man. So that when God looks at you, He's looking at you through the blood of Jesus. Through His death. Through His burial. Through His atonement. The fact that He's looking at you through the blood of Jesus and sees you purified because of the blood of Jesus. And that's based on faith. That faith is more than just an intellectual assent. As I said, it's a decision. It's a decision to love. It's a decision to obey. Now Judas, not Iscariot, verse 22. I feel sorry for this guy in verse 22. He got kind of a bum rap. This Judas, or you can, you'll know him also by James and also Thaddeus, which are the other names that he would go by within this, was a bit confused within this. And, and he says to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and, and, and not to the world? I don't get it. You've been around and walking and everybody's seen you. Well, what hasn't happened yet? Death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. There are some things that we just won't get until after the fact. We just won't get it. And faith causes us to look forward. Spiritual understanding looks in the rearview mirror so that we can see. Faith keeps us going forward but after we've passed that event, that trauma or whatever, spiritual understanding looks in the rearview mirror and says, Ah, now I get it. And the disciples would experience that. Jesus is trying to explain the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit, in this reciprocal relationship, and they don't get it. But they will. When? Revelation 21.3. And I heard with a loud voice of the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. When am I going to get it? When I get to heaven. When is it going to make sense? When I get to heaven. Will I understand it fully? Nope. That's okay. But I'll be looking in the, in the spiritual rearview mirror going, Okay. 
I'm here now. And it's good. And so he promises the Holy Spirit to teach and to encourage. Commissioned by Father, the Father to bring the Word of God. You see, have you ever read your Bible and you go, I don't get it? When you don't get it, stop. Pray. And ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. Don't try to look at it from a human logic standpoint. Because it's spiritually discerned. And we've got to understand that true interpretation only comes through the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 says this, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We have 66 books that are written on paper in front of us. Where did it all come from? God. You say, well, men wrote it. Yeah, they did. How? Inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Are there a lot of sacred writings that, that are not in the Bible? Yeah. Are they canonized? Are they, are they truth? Are they authentic? Are they spiritual? No. No. And there's a whole measurement. That word canon means measuring stick. When they took a look at the Scriptures, how do we know what is Scripture is true? Well, they looked to see if it, prophets spoke of it, if Jesus taught from it, and if it was mentioned and, and practiced within the early church. And if it was consistent with the nature, character, and name of God. And so there's a whole lot of people that had gone through to canonize Scripture to bring it into play. The other thing that is important to understand is that the Holy Spirit will never create new truth. If someone comes to you and says, I've got a new truth. And you're, they're telling you something that you've never heard before, and you can't find it in your Bible. Should you believe it? No. First John 4, 1 through 3 says this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out to the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit, note, that confesses that Jesus Christ has come from the flesh, is from God, or in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is in this world. What is the one thing that you can use to test truth? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Tell me who Jesus is. Because only those that declare that Jesus is the Son of God, that came to earth, died on the cross for your sins, paid that penalty, rose again physically, and ascended into heaven, and is the only way to heaven. That's truth. Any other way, liar. And don't listen to him. And so within this, Jesus closes with the inclusion at the end of this. He says to them, My peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Why? Because they were anxious. They were full of anxiety. They were losing their mind. And he says, This is the peace I'm giving you. There is a reason why I'm leaving. And I will come back. And you're not going to be alone. You're going to have the Holy Spirit present with you. This is the peace that will guard your heart and mind. 
I've got this. Don't worry. It's a peace that will, will wrap your head up with the truth of God's Word. Philippians 4.7, a powerful passage that I want to end on, says this, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. Read that slowly. The peace. Now that word peace, enre, does not mean absence of conflict. It doesn't mean an absence of conflict. But it means a silent confidence. The peace of God surpasses all comprehension, which it will blow your mind, will guard, and that word guard means to garrison, to set up soldiers around your heart, your emotions, and your mind, your thoughts. Note where, that word in, I've taught you as a dative. Where? In Christ. The peace of God in Christ forms a fortress around your heart and your mind. So is there a reason to allow anxiety to take control of you? Nope. Why? Because the peace of God is guarding my heart and my mind. Well, I'm getting anxious. Then you need to go back into the fort. You need to go back into the protection. That's a decision. And don't stick your head out. It might get slapped. Jesus was encouraging them. Why? Because things were about to get a bit sticky. As he gets ready and he's going to go across the Kidron Valley, up the other side to the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas is going to show up to betray him. Next week, we're going to be taking a look at a conversation that he has along the way about the vine and the branches. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you've given to us your word. Your word is truth. And we can make a decision to accept your word or to reject your word, but if we reject your word, we're on our own. But if we accept your word and put the full weight of our trust in your word, then we won't be moved. It'll be an anchor for our soul. Holy Spirit, I pray as you are present here right now, that you would bring peace to those that are anxious, comfort to those that are hurting, strength to those that are weak, and encouragement to those that are downcast, as you've promised to do. Because, Jesus, you never left us, nor will you forsake us. You're present. And all of this has been afforded to us, Lord Jesus, by what you did at the cross. You paid the penalty for our sins. We're no longer enemies of God. You redeemed us from death by paying the price for our sins and washed us in your blood. You gave your body in our stead and rose again, paving the way to life after death because you conquered death. We celebrate that even now. In a moment, as the worship team leads us in worship, and after a time of contemplating the table, I encourage you to come up and take a piece of the bread and the grape juice. Hang on to it until everybody's been served. This table is open to anybody.
that has put their faith and trust in Jesus. It's a memorial. It reminds us of what Jesus has done to give us confidence, peace, and hope. If you have sin in your life, though, that you're not willing to get rid of, if you're not wanting to love Jesus and obey Him, don't take part of the communion tonight. Because it has no meaning. This is a reminder of, and a celebration of what Jesus has done for you. But if you're not going to enter into that celebration fully, this is just a ritual. It's empty. But for those that have put their trust in Jesus, this is our time to come together. And just as Jesus broke the bread that night, He offers this bread to you today. And again, hang on to all the elements until everybody's there and the songs come to an end and then I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for this time. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts now. In Jesus' name. Amen. The cup was not removed, he drank it all. Oh, praise Him.
Stand before the Lord. God, as we stand here as your kids, we realize that we don't deserve the kind of love that you showed towards us, but you did. You gave everything. To bring us back from death and give us life. Lord Jesus, you sacrificed yourself in our place. You did not have to leave heaven. But for the love of your Father, you left. And you added to yourself humanity to experience everything that we've gone through so that you could be the perfect sacrifice and the perfect mediator. The perfect comforter. That Holy Spirit, you would be our helper. And it all began at the cross. Where everything changed. This bread that we hold up, we recognize that it reminds us of that free gift of life, new life, resurrected life, a body that will never fail and we will never taste of death, eternal death. This body may, may fall apart here on earth, but the trade-up is amazing because, Lord Jesus, you rose again physically and conquered death and made that path to heaven straight. We thank you for this bread and all that it reminds us of. We ask that you bless it to this body, to our body. We do so in taking it as an act of worship unto you. In Jesus' name. Let's all take it together. Thank you, Lord. So we hold the cup up. We think about, we're told in Scripture that our sins were red as scarlet but made white as wool. That we've been washed in the, in the blood of the Lamb and we don't get it. But God was using words 
to describe a spiritual action. You stand before a holy God right now, clean, holy, just, right, absolutely no sin, absolutely no condemnation, forgiven, protected, and left. All because Jesus poured out His blood on Calvary. This cup reminds us of that. And the special blessing that is implied in this. That as often as we do this, we remember Him. And we do so as an act of worship. May you bless this cup and all the meaning within it. As we honor you, Lord Jesus, by taking it. Together as one body with you, Lord Jesus, the head. We honor you now in Jesus' name. Let's all take the cup. Thank you. You stood before creation, eternity in your hand. You spoke the earth into motion, my soul now to
That's our commitment and prayer to you this evening, God, as we give you our heart again afresh and anew. And we'll stand on your word and declare your praises from the depths of our being each and every moment with our voice, with our lives, and in everything we do. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Praise Jesus. We'll see you Sunday. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.